If you have little ones, send them down. If the rest of you turn to 2 Corinthians 10, and we're going to pick up in verse 7. We're going to read through verse 18. It's great to be back together and doing that today, and we're, I'm excited for our time in the Word together. We're going to pick up in verse 7. I'm going to be reading from the New American Standard. You can find that around you. Otherwise, just um, read from whatever you study and memorize each week, and I'll give you verse cues. We'll stay together. Verse 7, you are looking at things as they are outwardly. If anyone is confident in himself that he is Christ's, let him consider this again within himself, that just as he is Christ's, so also are we. For even if I boast somewhat further about our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be put to shame. For I do not wish to seem, verse 9, as if I would terrify you by my letters, verse 10, for they say, his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech contemptible. Verse 11, let such a person consider this, that what we are in word by letters when absent, such persons we are also indeed when present. Verse 12, for we are not bold to class or compare ourselves with some of those who would commend themselves, but when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are without understanding. Verse 13, but we will not boast beyond our measure, but within the measure of the sphere which God apportioned to us as a measure to reach even as far as you, verse 14. For we are not overextending ourselves as if we did not reach to you, for we were the first to come even as far as you in the gospel of Christ. Verse 15, not boasting beyond our measure, that is, in other men's labors, but with the hope that as your faith grows, we will be within our sphere, enlarged even more by you, verse 16, so as to preach the gospel even to the regions beyond you and not to boast in what has been accomplished in the sphere of another. Verse 17, but he who boasts is to boast in the Lord, for it is not he who commends himself that is approved, but he whom the Lord commends. Let's stop right there. Two weeks ago, we began our study in this section, beginning in verse 7, with the understanding that Paul is going to defend himself, his qualifications, and his leadership. And by his qualifications, they can trust that the things that he teaches are from the Word of God and are thereby singularly true, and that dismisses anything else that they may hear. And we have seen that this is still important for today because it helps us qualify uh, what we hear from teachers in the church today. It gives us a measuring rod to use as a standard for identifying a faithful teacher and a faithful ministry. And just to kind of sum up where we've been, and I'm going to do it quickly because if you've been here, you know this, and if you haven't, you can catch up online on Spotify or on uh, YouTube, but the first mark of a faithful teacher we saw is you look at the outcome of his life. And that was from verse 7. Paul says, you're looking at things as they are outwardly. If anyone is confident in himself that he is Christ, let him consider this again within himself. That just as he is Christ, so also are we. Leaders can say whatever they want to say about their relationship to Jesus. They can say that, uh, that they have, uh, they're a person of faith. But you need to take a close look at the record of ministry. If you want to know whether you can believe them, the fruit of that ministry, their personal communion with Jesus Christ, and their life as it compares to the requirements of 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. And we saw the second mark of a faithful teacher, a faithful leader, one you can believe is based on the impact he's had over the church in the church over the long haul. We saw that from verse 8. For even if I boast somewhat further about our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be put to shame. Paul says this, he says, the outcome of my ministry with you is you've grown in your faith and you've grown in your sanctification. You have the evidence of your own life. 
And Paul says, I didn't bring confusing and divisive and destructive effect contrary to the purposes of Christ because the Lord's messengers don't destroy the church, they build it. And then we saw the third mark of a faithful leader should be based on his care for the people. And we saw that from verse 9. He says, for I do not wish to seem as if I would terrify you by my letters. He didn't want them to think he was trying to bully them. And in saying hard things, which he had to say, he wasn't abusing his authority as a minister. When Paul writes, we saw what is his underlying reason. We saw that from 2 Corinthians 2.4. He said, remember, for out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears. So every time Paul had to say something hard, it was difficult for him to do that. He wasn't rejoicing in the fact that they had to be sorrowful. He was rejoicing that he said, you might know the love which I have especially for you. So when he wrote to them, he just affirms his love for the church to see them come to repentance. But the contentious in the church always would say he's trying to terrify. That's the Greek verb ekphobian, which is where we get our word phobia. And we saw that's to mean to be in dread or to be interfere. Uh, Paul's being biblical about correcting error. And of course, some of them say he's just trying to terrify everyone and everyone is in dread of the Apostle Paul. And those of you who were saying that then are still found in the church now. Anytime any correcting that has to be done uh, from the Word of God, it's always interpreted incorrectly by a few. They're just trying to make people fearful. He's just being harsh. He's just trying to terrify people. But Paul says, listen, I don't find any joy in your sorrow. I find no joy in your discomfort. I find joy only in your repentance and in your gladness. And for that reason, he has to say hard things. And then we saw Mark 4 of a faithful leader is a lack of concern for worldly methods and for worldly approval. And we found that in, in verse 10. For they say his letters are weighty and strong, so he's pushing their words back towards them, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech is contemptible. And although this is a cruel and unkind running testimony and running commentary they had of Paul, we saw that he really could not care less about it. They attacked his fleshly shortcomings, uh, they, and then they went from that to his speech, He's not at all concerned about looking good. He, he's not concerned about dressing or acting the part of what they would consider a leader. He doesn't care about eloquence and rhetoric and verbal drama and all of that. He's not there to manipulate people with his words. Uh, so he fails then in their, in their picture of a leader. But he was pretty clear when he came to Corinth, when he penned 1 Corinthians 2, about why he came and how he came. He reminded them, when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech, or of wisdom, proclaim to you the testimony of God. I didn't come uh, to wow you with my presentation. For I determined, verse 2, to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. This is an educated man who certainly had more to offer than just that, but he said, listen, I wasn't content with doing those other things. I wanted to make sure that your, your faith rested on Jesus and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in per persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. So Paul was clear. He didn't care about presentation. He didn't care about how he looked. He didn't care about whether they thought he was a great speaker. What he cared about was that their faith and hope were placed where it really was needing to be placed, which was on the power of God and salvation. That's what he cared about. So their evaluation of him really was a badge he proudly wore. And and he didn't care about worldly methods. He didn't care about worldly dress, worldly approval. But, beloved, as we've seen and we ended last time, this, this enamoring of believers with outside things hasn't changed much in the modern church. It's still there. Style, eloquence, slick personalities, fancy lifestyles, slick stage, slick important stars with their polished tongues and, and who want to draw people to their, 
their personalities and move them with manipulating words. You know, the church still has to put up with all of that. It's still just as, as uh, prevalent now as it was in Paul's time, and Paul warns the church they need to be wary of them. And Paul is not like that, and neither is the true messenger. Uh, the focus is that the word of God is spoken, mark it, in undistracted simplicity. The power of true change is found in the word. What does it say? What does it mean by what it says? How do I apply that to my life? That's where change is found. And then we saw the, the fifth mark of a faithful leader can be based on consistency, and that's where we saw that in verse 11. Verse 11 says, Let such a person consider this, that what we are in word by letters when absent, such persons we also are indeed when present. In other words, I'm no different when I'm with you than when I'm not with you. In other words, I write to you the words that I live by, and I'll use those words with their power when I come. That's where we've been, and you're all caught up. Now look at verse 12, if you would. For, he says, we are not bold to class or compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves. But when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are without understanding. Let's take a look at that verse. Just a moment ago, we looked at Paul being criticized about being, uh, about being able to, to write boldly from a distance, but in person, you know, he really lacked authority. He lacked any kind of persona that people would follow. He, his physical attraction was absent and uh, coupled with the lack of charisma and appeal. They re- really regulated him to the loser's pile. That's what they were interested in doing. But in these next two verses, Paul really speculates uh, somewhat sarcastically, and you're going to see this, about how they're coming up with a standard by which they're judging him. And, and we're going to glean a few things from this passage, and I just call this the Mutual Admiration Club. That's what this is. Um, We've pointed it out numerous times over the course of, of life that uh, there's always groups there that are the Mutual Admiration Club. They just kind of, they're only concerned about what other people think about them, and they kind of pat each other on the back, and everybody's, you know, congratulating one another for what they consider to be the standard. So Paul says this, we're not bold to class or compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves. In other words, Paul says, I'm not, I'm not comparing myself with false teachers or anyone else to establish my effectiveness and my worth for kingdom affairs. Uh, you know, he's already established his qualifications, and they are externally verified. Whatever he said about himself is clearly visible, and we looked at some of that in this chapter and in some other chapters. But this is not the case with false teachers, because here's what they do. Some of those who commend themselves, and this is the first mark of a false teacher. Now, we've seen some other marks of false teachers in antithesis to Paul's uh, marks of a faithful teacher. In other words, those who are concerned about externals, right? And, and Paul is not. And so we say false teachers are always concerned about the flash and the slick, polished speech and all that. But here, it's just clearly stated in a sarcastic remark to them. This is the mark number one of a false teacher. And Paul just calls it out. And we'll just call this personal commendation. In other words, Paul's just referring to the self-promoting, self-commending, self-exaltation of false teachers. And he goes on and he elaborates on this and he says, he says, but when they measure themselves by themselves and when they compare themselves with themselves, they are without understanding. In other words, they let their praise be in their own mouth. They measure themselves by themselves. They're concerned about what others like them think about them. Uh, They are concerned about what will impress their followers And Jesus' comments on trusting in the opinions of the crowd really fell on deaf ears. If you remember, he's talking to his disciples in Luke 6, 26, and I've encouraged a number of men going into the ministry and my own sons about this, these two verses here. But um, in Luke 6, 26, uh, they were concerned about the religious leaders at the time and their 
Uh, they're uh, not speaking well of his disciples. And he says, woe to you when all men speak well of you. In other words, this is not a good place to be. For their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. In other words, you don't want to be in that company. When everybody thinks you're great, God probably doesn't. And then Proverbs 29, 25, which I just uh, chatted with some of my sons just not too long ago. The fear of man brings a snare. But he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. In other words, if you're worried about what people think, that's going to be a snare to effective kingdom work. If you're getting up to preach a message and you're worried if, if people will think you're great or if they think you're a Bible teacher or they think you know what you're talking about or whatever it is, you think you'll re- you're trying to relate to them and you're, you're wondering if you are and you're worried about that kind of thing and a lot of nervousness in the pulpit comes from that. It comes from people worried in the ministry about whether people will respond like they hope they will or whether they'll like them or they'll go out thinking, well, that was a really good Bible study or whatever. The fear of man brings a snare, see? And that's precisely what these guys are doing, and Paul's calling out this tendency to just commend themselves by themselves. And it's good to know what to look for in a faithful, trustworthy teacher. It's also good to know what to avoid. It's called ego congratulation. You know, such were the invaders in Corinth. These are the false teachers that moved in. Self-willed, proud, arrogant, self-promoters, passionately seeking recognition. They used their glib tongue and self-confidence and hypocritical personality and made themselves appear superior to everyone else including Paul, especially Paul. They're just saying, well, we're at this level, and Paul, you're not at this level at all. And, and we'll see when we come back to this and point out the right way to go. Uh, in antithesis to this, uh, Paul wasn't going to play on their field, and he wasn't going to fight with those weapons. His false teachers operate out of a very proud heart. They love preeminence. They love popularity. They love their status. They like to see their name in print. They love to see their picture, their face in the public view. They love to see their statistics in public view. And and we'll see that they boasted beyond what they had the right to boast about. They were boasting about this church in Corinth, and this wasn't their boasting. This was Paul's sphere. They took credit for other men's labors. They weren't interested in giving the Lord the glory and the credit that he's due. And they cared really little for divine approval and everything for human approval. So this mutual self-admiration society is making up its own standards. That's what Paul's saying. You've established the standard by which everybody has to be measured. And beloved, you don't have to look very far. There are hundreds of books out there right now that use that same kind of arbitrary standard. They, they build a big church on an unbiblical model, and then they write a book about the big success, and that becomes the standard, and then they're going to repeat that standard two dozen times before you get to the end of the book, and then they'll make sure that they get a half a dozen of their mutual admiration club to write the preface so they can all congratulate themselves about how great this really is. See, you see this over and over again, okay? And, and when they do that, Paul is carried along by the Holy Spirit to say, they are what? They're just without understanding. And this is Mark 2 of, of a false teacher. They can't evaluate correctly what they see. Their perception of what is important is skewed. The value system has been corrupted. And you can find that out by just listening for a very short time. And and it would be one thing if there was an objective norm by which everybody could be evaluated, as if there isn't, right? I mean, maybe what God thinks is important. But they invent the standard, that's what Paul's saying, and then meet the standard they invented and then proclaim themselves superior to everyone who doesn't meet the standard they invented. And you might want to note the word measure here in the passage. When they measure themselves by themselves, that's the Greek word canon, It's the word for standard. When we say the canon of Scripture, we're just saying the standard by which books and letters in the Bible were measured in order to be included in the final text. This is the word they're using here. They they invented the standard, and then they live up to it, and everybody else who doesn't then is substandard. 
and Paul's on the trash heap, if you will, on the Losers Club. And, and they, their standard was persona. And we know this presence and charm and personality and influence and appearance and impressive speech and catchy phrases and spiritual experiences and signs and powers and monetary success as very important today. They're just completely foolish, Paul says, without understanding. And Paul's evaluation of this for the church, here it is. Listen, only a fool would measure himself against a self-created standard and then declare himself superior to everybody else. Only a fool would do that. But that's precisely what's happening here. And here's the thing. When you, when you ask Paul for his bio before he's going to make a speech, uh, here's, here's the list he'd give you. In 1 Corinthians 2, 2, he says, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And that's not a way to get yourself invited to big conferences. I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. Nobody wants that on stage. If you're measuring by this arbitrary standard by which all, all supposedly good teachers are measured by. We know this is falseness, right? Paul's standard was objective. Based on what Jesus said, market would be the lot of those who followed him. Spiritual fruit, kindness, gentleness, meekness. You remember 2 Corinthians 10, 1? I came to you that way. So their standard was subjective and worldly. And we can get some hints of their standard in 2 Corinthians concerning what these were. We know what they looked for as an authoritative presence impressive speech we saw in verses 10 and uh, 1 and 10 but we'll just go through these quickly because we're going to be here in very short time but I think it's important as he was referring to what they're thinking is the standard we see it in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty. he says for you tolerated if anyone enslaves you so he's talking to the church now they enslave you so they're taking you captive these false teachers anyone who devours you they take up what you have Anyone who takes advantage of you, anyone who, so manipulating you with their words, anyone who exalts himself, so they puff themselves up and make sure that they have plenty of people uh, commenting on how wonderful they are. Anyone who hits you in the face as much as assaults you with their words, to my shame, I must say that we have been weak by comparison. In fact, I didn't do any of that, Paul said. But in whatever respect anyone else is bold, he says, I speak in foolishness, I'm just as bold myself. I hate to say this, but I'm bold, but not in the way that they are. But it is foolishness for me to brag. And then many of the false teachers were boasting about charging a fee for their ministry. Now Paul says this in, in verse 7. He says, Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you without charge? Paul brought his message to them for free. The other guys boasted of the speaker's fee that, of course, they knew they deserved. And they boasted of impeccable Jewish ancestry. Verse 21, he says, uh, But in whatever respect anyone else is bold, I, I speak in foolishness. I'm just as bold myself. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. We all have the same ethnic background. They're boasting if, as somehow that makes them have a greater elevated standard than anyone else, but I'm still there. They boasted of spiritual, impressive spiritual experiences. It's always the same with, with false teachers. Always what they saw, always what they experienced in the privacy of their own room. The Lord revealed this to me. I have this vision, whatever. It's constant, see, Red flag, red flag, red flag, red flag. Not verifiable. And not the way to increase your standing before people. So they, they boast of the spiritual experience. In fact, verse 12, chapter 12, verse 1, he says this, but um, boasting is necessary, he says, though it is not profitable. In other words, I'm going to have to say this, although this doesn't profit anyone, but I'll go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. That's what they're saying. So he'll say, you know, 
I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a man was caught up to the third heaven. Paul is speaking about whom? He's speaking about himself. And we're going to look at that later, and we'll go to the passage that probably corresponded with this. We won't do it today. Verse 3 says, And I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know. He doesn't care that he names himself because it isn't important. It's not verifiable, and it's not important for his status. So he just says, I know a guy who did this. God knows. He doesn't know whether it was a vision or actually he was actually there physically. He says, I was caught, up into par- was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. So I heard stuff and I can't tell you what it was. On behalf of such a man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast except market in regard to my weaknesses. So that doesn't look good on a bio. I'm not going to tell you about the things that I actually went through that are really amazing. I'm just going to say, I'm just going to boast in how bad I am and at certain things. For if I do wish to boast, I will not be foolish, for I'll be speaking the truth. In other words, if I told you about this, I'm not lying. But I refrain from this, mark it, so that no one will credit me more than he sees in me and hears from me. I've already established my ministry among you. You've already seen who I am. I don't have to say that I had all these visions and God revealed himself to me and this is a special thing that I know that you don't know. None of that, see? He didn't want to use what happened to him, which is unverifiable, to boost his standing. What he'd done already was verifiable enough. They boasted of performance of apostolic signs. So Paul says this. He says in, in verse 11, he says, I have become foolish. You yourselves compelled me. Actually, I should have been commended by you. I had to boast. but You should have just realized that I've already been among you doing this ministry. For no respect was I inferior to the most eminent apostles, even though, mark it, I'm a nobody. Once again, you don't want that on your bio. I'm a nobody. I'm in weakness. I don't know how to, you know, I don't have any of these special things I need to boast about. I'm a nobody, he says. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. Just remember, I was there. You saw what I did. And they're using all of this criteria that they made up to prove that Jesus was actually speaking through someone. And Paul says in chapter 13, verse 3, he says, since you're seeking for proof of the Christ who speaks in me, that's what they were doing, right? They said, well, we speak for Christ by their own standards. And I want to know how we know that you're speaking for Christ, Paul. And who is not weak towards you, but mighty in you. Everything about their nature is how triumphant they always are. It's how, it's how it always is with, with, uh, with false teachers. No failures, no setbacks, no hardships. There's no room for expressions of weaknesses and suffering and persecution and imprisonment, which were often Paul's lot. And mark this, which Jesus himself said would be the experience of those who followed him. When Paul gives the credentials for his apostleship, he doesn't give a catalog of successes. I'd like you to turn, if you would, just turn quickly to chapter 11. I'm just going to hit a few places here. It's important. Flip there in your digital copy or in your actual uh, paper copy. Um, And I don't want to spend too much time here again because we're going to be here soon. But listen to his words. These are not the lists of successes from a worldly point of view. These actually would be failures from the false teacher's self-made subjective standard. Paul says in verse 17, what I, what, I, what I am saying, I'm not saying as the Lord would. In other words, this is not what the Lord wants me to do, is to boast about some outward subjective standard. But as in foolishness, that's how he refers to it. If I have to boast on some outward subjective standard that I experienced and I can't verify, that's just foolishness. In this confidence of boasting, 
Verse 18, since many boast according to the flesh, I'll boast also. To my shame, I must say that we've been weak by comparison, so we're nothing compared to you, all your abilities and your oratory uh, excellence and your standards that you've set up for yourself. We're weak in comparison to that. But in whatever respect, anyone else is bold. Again, he says, I speak in foolishness. I'm just as bold myself. Verse 22, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. We saw all that. And then he says, are they servants of Christ? Remember, they said they're, they're servants of Christ by their own declaration. And he says, I speak as if I'm insane. I'm more so. Now, let's get to the real life of a follower of Jesus. Now, look at the rest of it. Verse 23. Here's, re- here's really where it is. In far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten time without number, often in danger of death. 24, verse 24. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. Verse 26. I have been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers from among false brethren. Verse 27, I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, oft without food, in cold and exposure. Verse 28, apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. In spite of all the other stuff that I have to endure and the hardships and the persecutions, I also have the worry of all the churches I've spoken to and everybody who has having a hard time, that weighs on me too. And then he goes on and talks about, and you can, you can switch back to chapter 10, verse 13. He goes on and talks about narrow escapes from death and being caught up to the third heaven and all this boasting, this boasting he calls foolishness. Why should he have to do it? That's the whole idea. His life among them should have been sufficient. The standard he has lived up to is the objective standard of Christ, bearing the fruit of the Spirit and the power of the Spirit and loving them as Christ loves them. And these are not exactly credentials that false apostles establish. In fact, they're probably laughing up their sleeve at him because he says, you know, I was, I was often in hunger and thirst. Well, it's just because you're terrible at what you do. It's why you're suffering such persecution. And I'm often in danger in journeys and rivers and dangers and robbers. That's because, you know, the Lord's not with you. Paul doesn't care, but he doesn't fight with those weapons. He doesn't care about measuring their arbitrary standards. See, he's not going to play that game. Now look at verse 13, back to 2 Corinthians 10, 13. He says this, but we will not boast beyond our measure because that's what they're doing. They're boasting that they had influenced the church and they'd established the church and they had a bunch of stuff going on. They're boasting in other people's work. He goes, I'm not boasting beyond my measure, but within the measure of the sphere, which God apportioned to us as a measure to reach even as far as you. And here's Mark 6 of a faithful leader. It can be based on his humbleness. His humbleness. Paul is content to be the man God created him to be. Now, how do we know this? Because there's a lot of ways that the church thinks they need to interpret humility. Here it is. Number one, how do we know Paul is humble? First, Paul refused to engage in self-promotion, self-glory. In fact, he gives no consideration to it whatsoever. He doesn't care about this whole arbitrary standard. He doesn't live up to it. He's not worried about whether he lives up to it. He thinks it's foolish to ever even compare himself with them. Number two, Paul just points out the work he's done in the area assigned to him by the Lord. And that's the whole point of 
verse 13. This is where the Lord brought us, and I'm content to just do this work, and you can see this work. And then number three, and, and beloved, if you haven't caught anything we said up till now, please catch this one. How do we know Paul's humble? Paul knew that the true man of God knows the standard is Jesus and not everybody else's books and evaluations and, and arbitrary standards. And mark it, he knows he never meets it. Right? He knows the standard is Jesus and he knows he never meets it. And so he always knows that he's inferior. And that's what we're talking about when we say he's humble. To get into this discussion about who's greatest is pointless because he sees himself as the chief of sinners. He's not going to say I'm the greatest. I'm the worst. He's perfectly fine with that, see? And that's a great standard to keep in mind. And, and if, you're, if you're teaching a small group, if you're, you're over a Sunday school, if you're going to be in ministry in some way, you know, that's a great standard to remember. The standard is Jesus, not other people's evaluation of what you're doing or the latest book that comes off of the bestseller list from an author who just points out another non-biblical way to build a church and then congratulates himself 12 times through the book and then everybody else writes a preface to make sure he feels good about it. That has nothing to do with it. The standard is Jesus. You never measure up to it, and so you're always humble, and you're just doing what you're supposed to do, see? And that, you know, and anyone who served as an overseer for any length of time and has done it correctly concurs completely with that evaluation of himself. The, the standard is Jesus, and you never measure up to where you should be. Well, false teachers don't ever seem to think that way, right? It's always victory, victory, victory. God's doing great and mighty things among us, right? You always hear that. What about faith, love, and hope? What about doing the hard things? Uh, faithfully giving out the gospel even when it's hard, right? What take a stand for Christ? What about ups and downs that cause hardship in the church? You never hear any of that, see? It's always God's doing great and mighty things. God's doing great and mighty things. Victory, 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 see? But it's just a self-made illusion of grandeur. That's what it is. Self-made. Paul's humility isn't, though, I'm good, I can't do anything. It isn't that. Okay, so we want to make sure we close that up. Look at verse 14. For we're not overextending ourselves as if we did not reach to you. In other words, let's be real. I mean, the fact that you're even here is the result of our labor. For we were the first to come even as far as you in the gospel of Christ. That's the reality, see? God chooses to use vessels of clay. You're not here because the false teachers with all their flash and their self-made standards and their formulas of greatness um, established you. No, you're here because we came to you and established it. I led the synagogue leader to faith and we moved next door and we established a church and I put up with all of the stuff they had to put up with, right? That's what he told them back in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. We have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not of ourselves. God uses earthen vessels. God uses people who are uh, incomplete. God uses people who struggle. See, that's the, re that's the reason it's so marvelous to read the Word of God and why I encourage you to do it every day because you see that God picks people who are flawed. He uses people who are not the most powerful, not the most mighty, not the most wise. He picks the foolishness of things of the world to confound the wise and he wants you just that way so that you can be in, in his power, not in your own. See? No grand illusion that God accomplished something because Paul was great, but he did accomplish something because Paul wasn't great. Romans chapter 1, verse 5, we see this all the way through Paul's writings. You can't miss it. Through whom we have, he said, received grace 
and apostleship. We've received this. This is a grace gift to us to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. I didn't bring anything to the table to make that happen. I received grace and apostleship, and that's what happened. Romans 15, 18, we will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed. In other words, I'm not going to speak of anything that I know, anything that I've done, just what the Lord did through me, the chief of all sinners, to bring about the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed. And, and beloved, he comes to what he knows will soon be the end of his life, and he says in Acts chapter 20, verse 24, Mark this, I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. He knew the sphere of the ministry God had given him, and he was content to do it without recognition. It didn't matter if, if nobody recognized he was an apostle. He constantly had to defend himself. It didn't matter if he got no recognition for planting the church in Corinth. It didn't matter. He poured himself out, and he did what he was supposed to do. And to his son in the faith, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6, he says this. He says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. My life is nearly used up. And if you looked at everything he endured, that's not surprising. It's not the years, it's the miles. And the time of my departure has come, and I fought the good fight. I finished the course. I've kept the faith. Isn't that a great thing to be able to say at the end of your life? You just operated inside the sphere that God had given you, and you were faithful there, and you finished your course. And he was very content with that. And Mark this. Paul was more concerned about the quality of what he did than the size of it. He was more concerned about the excellence of what he did than the worldly evaluation of success. He was more concerned about the depth of what he did than the breadth of it. And I've told you over and over, modern ministry most of the time is a mile wide and an inch deep. More concerned about flash and about appearance and about feeling good and about the right right aura when you come in than whether or not people are going to grow. Paul isn't interested in making wild, self-congratulatory claims for himself, showing everybody all the great things he's done. He speaks only of what Christ has done through him in the sphere of his calling, supported by objective evidence and absolutely true. He's, he worked inside of what God had sovereignly designed and a portion for him to do. And that's important. And I was reminded this week that these principles that Paul lives by have always been true. These are not unusual for the Apostle Paul. The Lord just expects us to operate inside the sphere he's given you, wherever that is, and whatever your job is, whatever your friend circle is, just be faithful, pour yourself out like a drink offering, fight the good fight, finish the course, keep the faith. Paul was interested in that. And, and there's a great illustration of this in Jeremiah. It's where I'm currently reading as I work my way through the Bible this year. There are two spots I want to read. I want you to turn, if you would, to Jeremiah 1. Will you do that? And if you're in a paper version, just go to Psalms, which is right in the middle, five books to the right. You'll be there. And we're going to wrap up with these two passages because we're nearly out of time. So I want to read them, and then I want uh, to comment a little bit. And I think that you'll see what I'm talking about is this is always the evaluation God has. Operate in the sphere he's given you not what you think you deserve, not what you think it should be. I mean, every minister who's ever ministered wants a full church. Why? Because it makes it appear that he knows what he's doing. Is that always the way God designs it? No. No, but, but in your mind, you think, okay, if there's a full church, that means I know what I'm doing. Not necessarily. So 
these passages, I think, remind us that this is always the way God calls the ones who minister for him. And this is a tough ministry for Jeremiah, no question about that. But look in your Bible to Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 4. And let's read it. I'm going to pick up in verse 4. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, so the Lord's speaking to Jeremiah. And he says this in verse 5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. Now you might find it interesting to note that those were the exact words the Apostle Paul said about himself. That's not unusual for those who minister to say those things. And, and when the truth is known, I believe this will be the story of every true minister. Now, I'm not talking about the guys who picked it as a career, okay? When they thought about careers and they thought, okay, I'll, just, I'll be a pastor. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about guys who have been nudged by the Lord and the Lord's urging is there and they felt God's urging and, and to go into ministry. I think that everyone, and I've said this to many guys who are considering ministry or who are in the ministry, and talk about how do I know, and I just talk about whether or not you felt the Lord's urging, not his audible voice, but the urging to do this, and that you can't really feel comfortable doing anything else because he's pushing you this way. And, and I think that's going to be the story of everybody. Um, but here the Lord goes on, and, and to say this about Jeremiah, he says this. He says, before you were born, I consecrated you. That's verse 5. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. Pause right there. Now, that's the scope of Jeremiah's ministry. And that's big, Right? But before you get enthralled too much about the scale of his ministry, listen to Jeremiah's response and then the Lord's parameters and his vision for Jeremiah's future. So here's Jeremiah's response when the Lord says, I have appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Before you were even born, I had you picked, and this is what you're going to do. And then Jeremiah says, verse 6, Alas, Lord God, behold, I don't know how to speak. You're going to have me go before nations. I, I don't know how to speak. I can't do this because I'm a youth. Verse 7, but the Lord said to me, do not say I am a youth, because everywhere I send you, you shall go, and all I command you, you shall speak. In other words, don't say you're a youth and that's an excuse. You're going to go where I tell you, and you're going to say what I want you to say. And then you're, he's saying that because he's afraid of what people are going to say, because the fear of man brings a snare, right? He's going to, you're made a prophet to the nations. I'm just young. I'm not going to say what they need to hear, and they're just going to make fun of me, and they're going to ridicule me because I don't have any experience. In verse 8, he says, don't be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you declares the Lord. Verse 9, Then the Lord stretched out his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I put my words in your mouth. So the Lord actually physically touches Jeremiah's mouth and says, I've given you my words. See, verse 10, I have appointed you this day over the nations and over the kingdoms to pluck up and break down, to destroy and overflow. I've given you an overthrow. I've given you the words for the nations to pluck up and break down, to tell, to tell the nations when they're going to be plucked up and broken down, to tell the nations when they're going to be destroyed and overthrown, to build and to plant, and to tell the nations when it's going to be restored. So verse 11, the word of the Lord came to me saying, what do you see, Jeremiah? Now he's going to test Jeremiah. Okay, put the words in his mouth. He gives him a vision, and Jeremiah says, I see a rod of an almond tree. Verse 12, then the Lord said to me, you've seen well. I'm watching over my word to perform it. In other words, I've given you something in your mind. You told me what it was. That's precisely what I want because I want you to say exactly what I give you. So it was a little test. And then he says in verse 13, the word of the Lord came to me a second time saying, what do you see? And I said, I see a boiling pot facing away from the north. Now he's getting into the meat of the issue. He's tested him. He's given him his words. He's told him what his, the scope of his ministry is going to be. He's encouraged him and said, okay, you know what you're seeing. Now what do you see now? I see this boiling pot. Then he gives him the definition of that, verse 14. Then the Lord said to me, out of the north, the evil will break forth on all the inhabitants of the land. That's the land Jeremiah is currently occupying. That doesn't sound too good. Verse 15. For behold, 
I'm calling all the families of the kingdoms of the north, declares the Lord, and they will come, and they will set each one his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem and against its walls round about and against all the cities of Judah. Verse 16, I will pronounce my judgments on them concerning all their wickedness, whereby they have forsaken me and have offered sacrifices to other gods and worshipped the works of their own hands. So that doesn't sound like a fun message. It doesn't sound like somebody's going to get invited to the next seminar. It sounds like somebody's going to be very unpopular. And if you've read Jeremiah, you know that's precisely what it was. Now, look at verse, and this marks this verse 17. This is some very important. So now you know what's going to happen. And you've seen my vision. I put my, word, your words, my words in your mouth. Now gird up your loins and arise. In other words, get ready for some action. And speak to them all which I command you. Do not be dismayed before them or I will dismay you before them. So don't doubt me, okay, because I'm going to make, I'm going to embarrass you if you do that. Now, verse 18, now behold, I have made you today as a fortified city and as a pillar of iron and in walls of bronze against the whole land to the kings of Judah, to its princes, to its priests, and to the people of the land. In other words, I have given you very thick skin. Well, why would I need thick skin? Because nobody's going to listen to you. And they're going to ridicule you. And they're going to take a book you wrote and they're going to throw it in the fire and you're going to have to write it again. And they're going to throw you in a well and they're going to leave you there and they're going to treat you badly. But I'm going to make you unassailable. I'm going to fight for you. I'm going to preserve you. Verse 19, they will fight against you, but they will not overcome you. For I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Now, let me ask you something. Does that sound like victory, victory, victory? Success, success, success? Your best life now? You know, name it and claim it. This is exactly what the Lord wants for you. If you speak the words, he's going to bless everything about it. You're going to have a big congregation. Everybody's going to turn. That's the false teachers were teaching that. They were saying in Jeremiah, in two years, the Lord's going to return all the objects from the temple and everything's going to be great. And Jeremiah's like, uh, no. And so he wasn't popular. They're in the middle of the battle. He goes to the king. Why are you resisting? Don't resist. Go. The Lord's given this city up. Nobody would listen. Right? Slick stage, cool, lighting. Everything's going to be great. Everybody's going to respond. You're going to be a bronze wall. You're going to be like a pillar of iron. And you're going to be against the kings of Judah and all of its princes and all of its priests and the people of the land. See, it's, it's not always with all a bunch of uh, accolades. Now, I'd like you to look at the last one. It's in Jeremiah 45. So turn there. We're going to finish with this. Now, here we see another great example of the Lord really setting the scope of the ministry of one of his own. A guy named Baruch, who is the scribe for Jeremiah. He's the guy that's writing Jeremiah's words. And it starts this way. Verse 1, it says, This is the message which Jeremiah the prophet spoke to Baruch, the son of Neriah when he had written down these words in a book at Jeremiah's dictation. So Baruch is writing these things down. Jeremiah is telling him what to write. In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, saying, verse 2, Thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, to you, O Baruch. So Jeremiah is being uh, told by the Lord to tell Baruch this so he can write it down. Verse 3, You said, Ah, woe is me, for the Lord has added sorrow to my pain, and I'm weary with my groaning, and I have found no rest. So in his heart, the scribe of Jeremiah has said, this is not turning out like I thought it was going to turn out. I mean, I hitched my wagon to Jeremiah, and I'm his scribe, 
and things are bad, and I thought they would be good, and I thought because he's a true prophet of the Lord that things would be good for me too. And this is going to be really fun, and this is not fun. In fact, it's really sorrowful. I found no rest. And then verse 4, it says, Thus you are to say to him, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, what I have built, I'm about to tear down. What I've planted, I'm about to uproot. That is the whole land. In other words, Baruch, your worst nightmare is actually going to be the reality. You're not going to keep the land. You're not going to be able to stay here. Things are not going to be comfortable. It's not going to be victory, 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 success, success, success. You know, lots of people following and, and you know, by your connection to Jeremiah, things are going to be great. That's not what's going to be. I'm going to uproot this place and I'm going to give this land into the hand of the king of Babylon. Verse 5. But you are seeking great things for yourself. Do not seek them. In other words, in Barak's mind, it was going to be a lot better than it is. He was thinking it was going to be great. And he imagined that, like every other minister who goes into ministry, things are always going to be great. It's always going to be fantastic. Do not seek them. For behold, he says, I am going to bring disaster on all flesh. Now that does not sound like, you know, what we hear today. Declares the Lord. But I will give you your life as booty in all the places where you may go. How's Baruch going to serve? How, what's going to be the, the reward for Baruch's faithfulness? His own life. He won't be killed when the kingdom is given up to Babylon. That doesn't sound like what he imagined he signed up for. Or Jeremiah either, for that matter. Tough ministry Baruch's in. And, and I'm not trying to minimize it. I think if any of us found ourselves in the same situation, uh, we would probably similarly respond. I thought it would be a lot better than this. In fact, a lot of Christians who make a false profession of faith and get into a position where uh, things are difficult because they identify as a Christian, think this is not what I signed up for. I signed up for Christianity to make my life better because that's the false Christianity that's portrayed so much anymore these days, the false gospel. But that's not how it is, see. I'm not downplaying what Baruch is going through, not downplaying what Jeremiah is going through, but the key to the passage is that the Lord knew the thoughts of his scribe and Jeremiah had to speak to them and Baruch was hoping for more than he was going to get, and the Lord was just correcting that and just saying, listen, it doesn't mean you're not doing right. It doesn't mean you're not doing what I asked you to do. It doesn't mean you're not following through and being faithful. It just means that I'm not going to do what you think is going to happen, but that doesn't matter. And, and we see in Jeremiah and Isaiah, Isaiah, you will be with them. They won't listen to you, but when you leave, they'll know a prophet's been among them. They're not going to change. They're still going to go into captivity. It's still going to be very hard for them. It would seem like your ministry was ineffective, but it wasn't. You still did what I told you to do. And, and I think that's very illustrative of, of Paul's position. Paul was in that exact same position. You know, he was faithful and he's humble and he could handle the limits the Lord had given him. He didn't need to be bigger than God intended him to be. He didn't have to compare himself with anyone. God had given him a specific call, a commission to fulfill, and he was content to be there and do it. He was called to preach the gospel in the Gentile world, in unreached regions, and there to found churches and appoint leaders. And that's exactly what he did. And he had to deal with paganism. He had to deal with threats to his life. And haughty, self-absorbed, pseudo-apostles who wanted to move in and try to prove that Paul was substandard. And this is from the Lord's hand. Paul was content to be there and do it. And Paul was completely okay with all of those things. In fact, he was overwhelmed with the privilege because he never felt he lived up to the standard, which was Jesus anyway. He was always the greatest of sinners and just grateful the Lord in his mercy had put him in a position to minister. He's going to minister in relative obscurity, considering that he wrote more than 70% of the New Testament. He ministered in relative obscurity, and his impact has really been after his life, hasn't it? The greatest impact of his life. And, and even in comparison to the other apostles, always having to make a defense of himself and his apostleship, always, 
He spent his last years in prison, likely executed under the reign of Nero, and he was perfectly content with that. And there's a lot to pull out of that, I think. Isn't there? And so he can confidently end this chapter like he does, which we will see next time. You can look at verse 18 on your own. He can end the chapter that way because he was perfectly content with the sphere of influence the Lord had given him and no more. Just like Jeremiah and like Baruch had to be corrected and any number of other leaders throughout the course of history you've never heard of who ministered in relative obscurity in places you wouldn't know and yet did exactly what the Lord wanted them to do. And that's a blessing to know that, I think, and an encouragement as we do what we should do. Let's bow and be dismissed in prayer. We're out of time. Lord, we thank you today for uh, an opportunity to be in your word. Very grateful for your people who are here, who uh, are ministering downstairs and up here, who are worshiping together. It's, um, it's a blessing to know that you're working through them and that you're at work in their lives and through your word because you always accomplish what you seek to accomplish when your word goes out. Help us to be found right where you want us in doing the things you want us to do in the sphere you've given us and not longing for something else and greatness and some kind of marvelous thing, but just doing what we should be doing and ministering like we should be ministering in these last days as we wait for Christ's return, as Jason read earlier, summing up all things in Christ. If it's ever that time, it's that time now. And in a time when uh, great wickedness is coming out of the leaders in Washington, Lord, we, we certainly can be content with our lot knowing that speaking the truth which tears down high towers, fortresses, in the opportune time when you swing the sword and bring it down is just what we're supposed to do. And help us wherever we are, wherever you put us, just be content with that, with that sphere and we'll be pleasing to you, well-pleasing. Thank you for our time today, Lord, as we go off from here. Help us not to forget to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we demonstrate that by being obedient to your commands. And we're to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. There was no, never any lack of love for ourselves and taking care for ourselves. So, Lord, as we think about all the difficulties in our culture and all the, all the ethnic groups at war with one another, love our neighbor as we love ourselves. We don't have to have any other command. And then, Father, as we have opportunity, open our minds, your heart, our hearts, our, your word, their heart, we might give the gospel the good news of Christ that many may come to be saved and teaching them to observe all you've commanded us. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. All God's people said, amen.